You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. This podcast was recorded on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh people. To learn more about the land you are on, visit native-land.ca. Hello and welcome to Women's Health Interrupted, a Women's Health Research Cluster podcast. I'm Rebecca Barron. And I'm Sydney Clips. Through scientific inquiry and storytelling, this podcast brings you content about women's health from many angles. Today, we will be discussing the topic of brain health, including how sex influences neurological disorders and understanding how this affects the brain-mind-body connection for women. To learn more about this topic, we will be speaking with a phenomenal guest and expert, Dr. Sherry Hayden. Dr. Hayden is a clinical neuropsychologist and clinical assistant professor with the Division of Neurology, Department of Medicine at the University of British Columbia. She has served as a clinical neuropsychologist in the Clinic for Alzheimer's Disease and Related Disorders since 1993. Dr. Hayden applies functional and lifestyle medicine principles throughout her clinical practice, serving a variety of neurological populations, such as those with mild cognitive impairment, neurodegenerative disorders, and traumatic brain injury. Dr. Hayden, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. We are so excited to have you. And let's start off with, are women more at risk of developing specific neuropsychological issues? How do these affect or impact the brain-mind-body connection or potentially cause a lack of this connection? Okay, well, uh, that's that's a, a big question and a number of questions. So I'll start with the first one. Yes, unfortunately, women indeed have a higher risk for various brain-based neurological and mental health issues. Perhaps one of the most prominent examples is Alzheimer's disease. So two out of three Alzheimer's patients are women. And if we look at that a different way, a 45-year-old woman has a one in five chance of developing Alzheimer's during her lifetime versus a one in 10 chance for the same age male. So a significant risk. And we see higher risk for women in other disorders, such as clinical levels of anxiety and depression is twice as common in women than in men. And women are three times more likely to have autoimmune disorders, including those that affect the brain, such as multiple sclerosis. So there are a number of conditions that affect women more commonly than men. And then I think your next question was about how these conditions affect the brain-mind-body connection. And I would just say, indeed, your brain is the hub of control or the control center for all aspects of expression of your mind and your body. So that would include things like your mood and your language, different aspects of your thinking, your behavior and movement. So all of the conditions that I've mentioned earlier that affect your neurological health and your mental health would likely negatively impact these different areas of function. Yes. And so statistically, we're seeing a real overrepresentation on the side of women. And so is this also represented within active research literature and practice, given that there's so much overrepresentation? Well, I, I would like to say that it's equally overrepresented in clinical practice and research, but sadly, no. I think certainly... Uh, 
you know, organizations or collectives such as the UBC Women's Health Research Collective is encouraging. And I do think that emerging research focused on sex differences and women's health is increasing. But on the clinical front, having worked 27 years in the field of neurology as a neuropsychologist, I can say that we are lagging clinically. There are not specific sex-specific or gender-specific treatment protocols for women. And in many cases, it's not even acknowledgement that there are these sex differences. So we have a long way to go. And some of that is based on the history of research that really focused largely on male participants until like the 1990s as well as the fact that when we look at clinical practitioners in neurology, two-thirds of them are male. So we're a minority. A good example is in my clinic, I'm uh, one of two female docs and the rest are like there's six or seven male docs in an Alzheimer clinic. Goodness. So yeah. how can we improve equity in this arena from both the research side as well as you know just getting more women into these positions as well? It's hard to say. I mean, obviously, there's activity towards trying to encourage financial support for research that's specific to sex differences, although there's a long way to go. I think on the clinical front, it's really working on the culture of neurology, of the practice in these areas of medicine. And my hope is that will come from educating women about their own brain health risks and how that might affect them and and the women that they love. And that would then inspire them to pursue perhaps careers in these areas. Mm. And so linking up with that knowledge translation and advocacy piece you just alluded to, what are some of the most important messages that you wish public health campaigns would target in this field and that you wish women could really understand more about? I think it really is working more on educating women about their own personal risks, both as women, but also in their own medical history. And this is really critical to understanding ways that you might mitigate risk for disease. And this is the basis of precision medicine, which is is really, I think, the future of clinical care. We've got a ways to go, but that's really what we believe will be the future of clinical care. And I also would like to see, as a person who has educated myself and received training in lifestyle medicine and different aspects of how that might affect your health, My hope is that for the future, Western medicine begins to integrate lifestyle modifications and interventions and value them, not see them as minor. And I think women in general need to see them as a significant contributor to their health, just as important as taking medication, perhaps maybe more important. And so that would include mind-body practices like yoga and meditation, which by the way, women are more likely to practice, as well as understanding dietary exercise and stress reduction techniques that they might integrate into their lifestyle. And I think although in Canada, we're moving towards that, we are slow to move on the clinical front. And my hope is that in the future, clinicians will practice with both in mind and understanding that managing disease has to include managing health and wellness practices. And that if we approach that in a balanced way, in a science-based way, I think women's health and our understanding of women's health and risk will improve dramatically. Mm, Wonderful. 
And shifting gears a little bit to the science side, I know that there's so much information, but could you go over just a brief overview of the risks and how they differ in terms of sudden traumatic events, such as stroke, maybe longer term events, such as dementia and Alzheimer's, and then potentially ongoing more cyclical events, such as anxiety, for example? Yeah, so certainly there are differences in how women experience various neurological and mental health issues, as you mentioned, and how they're expressed in women. A good example, as you've mentioned, is strokes. So women are 50% more likely to die from a stroke in the first year following their stroke. So their mortality risk is higher in that first year than men, despite the fact that the risk for stroke is higher for men in most age groups. So men are likely to have a stroke in many age groups, but women are more likely to die from a stroke. So that's important information. We also know that the presentation of cardiovascular disease, many of us are aware that a woman's presentation of a heart attack looks different than a man's presentation of a heart attack. You know, the man's presentation of the Hollywood heart attack where your left arm is weak or numb is not often how women express this condition. So it's important to recognize that. Other conditions that are acute include concussion, traumatic brain injury. Women actually experience more symptoms than men in traumatic brain injury, particularly if they sustain that concussion in the luteal phase of their cycle. So phase of cycle is important. So the last two weeks of their cycle, if a woman sustains a concussion, they're more likely to have more significant symptoms post-concussively, and they may take longer to recover. So that really speaks to how our hormones affect our brain health, right? As well as our structural differences. So women in sport are more likely to sustain a concussion in the same sport versus a man. And that's possibly due to structural differences or weaker. So an example would be weaker neck muscles and women are less protective of their brain function and the acceleration, deceleration injuries that can happen. When we're looking at mental health issues, again, women and men certainly can express things like anxiety and depression in a different way, because we are wired differently. But fundamentally, I think it's important to start with the fact that our stress response, that first initial stress response, when we're under duress, for women tends to be more cerebral. So we've all heard of the fight flight response when we're under stress of the sympathetic nervous system that we all we all experience. But in addition to that, what's interesting is research has found that women also have a tendon befriend response during times of stress. And that is because there's a greater activation of their limbic system. And because of women's larger connectivity between different areas of their brain and the role of estrogen, oxytocin, which is kind of the love hormone, gets released during times of stress. And so women tend to seek others and seek support more than men during times of stress. So that's a good thing. I mean, that's an advantage, right? Mm-hmm. When it so comes we- to yeah, more progressive disease, again, I think we know less about differences in progression. We do know that incidence is higher in women for Alzheimer's disease. So I think it's just recognizing that there are those differences and trying to integrate that into the science of things like drug trials, which I don't think they're doing, actually. Yeah. And so you just mentioned that there's not this integration in terms of clinical trials. And given all of these diverse differences, how do we start to tailor these guidelines in the science and research to address, for example, this 50% mortality rate in stroke? 
Again, I think it's a challenge. I think it starts with the clinicians and education of the clinicians, but because there's a ways to go there, I think perhaps to me, the best way to start is to educating all women about their own health so that they can self-advocate so that you can go to the doctor and say, Hey, I read this thing. They might roll their eyes, you know, If you have a male doc and you're saying, look, I have a concussion and my menstrual cycle is changed, they might look at you and go, but you hit your head. So why is that related? Right. I've heard that before. Mm -hmm. And it is related because your brain controls your hormones. So, of course, it makes sense. But clinicians are divided into specialties. And so they don't tend to think in that way, in a holistic way often. And so I think women, we have to advocate for ourselves in hopes that in the future, clinical care will catch up. But, you know, I, I don't mean to be a pessimist, but I don't think that there's any magic answer to that. I think that there is a long course to go to educating the educators. But in the meantime, I think my best hope is for us to educate women in general so that they can, with confidence and with data and science behind them, because they've read it, go to their doctors and say, look at this article. This is happening to me. Because the problem is for women in healthcare, we also know the other challenge for women is that they tend to be identified as psychosomatic more often. So if you go to a doctor as a woman with the same symptoms that a man goes to the doctor for, he's more likely to be diagnosed with some condition that has nothing to do with mental health, regardless of if you have the same condition. Sometimes that's okay if it's a mental health issue, but if it's not a mental health issue and you get dismissed that, you know, maybe you're depressed, not only is it not validating, you may be misdiagnosed. And so I think we have to, we just have to inform ourselves better and we have to feel comfortable with not necessarily confronting healthcare providers. I don't think that's helpful, but educating, you know, working as a team towards your own health. And a good clinician will accept that. A good clinician will go, okay, well, I agree with this. I don't agree with that, but I agree with this. Uh, Let's look at it. I think particularly with women being dismissed too, there's all of these other layers based on rural versus urban and racialized and marginalized and vulnerable groups of women. And so when we add in all of these additional layers, the self-advocacy piece becomes more more layered and more challenging. And so I think one of our goals with this podcast is really to connect folks like you doing this work with the people who need to hear it. And so I just think that self-empowerment piece is so key. So thank you for highlighting that. Shifting gears a little bit into an area of your research, can you talk a little bit more about how, as women, we're more likely to be caregivers of those with brain-related injury or cognitive impairment? And can you talk about addressing the burnout and depression among female-identifying caregivers, particularly in this very challenging time we're in with COVID? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think this past year has challenged us all. And I think from the dementia field, which is where much of my clinical practice and research has been, although I do work in traumatic brain injuries as well, we do know that there are two and a half times more women that are dementia caregivers than men. So obviously women are more prominent in those roles, but I would also add that many of these women are often sandwiched between the roles of motherhood as well. So it's often daughters or daughter-in-laws taking care of a parent in addition to taking care of their children. And as we've gotten better at diagnosing patients, we also see 
dementia patients with younger children, which I have worked with, uh, you know, in the province, I take children and, and give them some support and counseling and education if they have a parent with dementia. And I've seen children as young as eight who have a parent with dementia, because we have gotten better at diagnosing Alzheimer's disease and dementia earlier on. The challenge is that those women caregivers are parenting a child, but also have a husband with dementia. So you can imagine this, the strain. And then if you add on to that, our past year of pandemic and limited resource and limited supports, I think we're at a tipping point. There are support organizations like the Alzheimer's Society and other specific support organizations, depending on the condition, like traumatic brain injury society and things like that, that can provide support groups and such. But again, I think we have to educate women more about self-care when I'm in front of a family member, especially if it's a woman, I mean, any family member, but if it's a woman, I, I try to spend some time educating that woman caregiver about the importance of self-care because including mind-body practices and lifestyle interventions gives you a toolbox to navigate through these difficult challenges that we may not have control over right? Sometimes we can't control that we end up in that caregiver role. And so you need some tools. And I think it's important to recognize that. I certainly educate my family members by using myself as an example. I tell them I've been in this business 27 years and I burn out on a regular basis or I flirt with it. And I've noticed that the younger, the older I get, the better I am at my job, but the harder uh, the burnout hits because the cumulative effect of it all. And I, and I say, you know, and I don't live 24 hours with a dementia patient. I just see them during the day. So what has to happen is I've just gotten better at finding ways to take care of myself and scheduling that in the way that works for me. And so that's really hard, though, if you're living with a dementia patient and you're doing everything. But it's just sometimes it's just giving permission. And as health providers, as clinicians, sometimes that's all I do is say, I give you permission to go lock the door and have a bath and a glass of wine if that's what you need, because he doesn't need to be with you all the time. You need a break. And if you don't have a break, you know, this is a marathon, not a sprint. You're not going to make it through this. And so sometimes it's being that harsh about it to help them understand. But my hope is that we could integrate the understanding that for women, although we're wired for caregiving, we are less good at self-care and that we need to start making that part of our culture as women. Taking care of yourself is okay. That we're not judging you because you're not making, you know, organic meals for your kids or your loved one. You're tired. So order in, who cares? You know, you need a break. So it's important to, to have that balance. And I think that culture of womanhood could shift a bit more too. Absolutely. And I think it's that that hope to to really shift in the culture and not just think about self-care as one specific thing. And thank you as well for mentioning that resource. Also, we'll, we will link to the Alzheimer's Society down below um, in the show notes. Finally, Dr. Hayden, you have spent decades working in clinical practice and research. And so for you, what's it all for? 
Well, I mean, it's been a great honor. I feel, although, you know, it's been difficult work emotionally, I've loved and continue to love every minute of it. I, I think I feel honored to guide people at, at, you know, the most difficult times. And I hope that in those times that I was able to be a bit of a light in some of these dark hours. But I, I also hope that we can move forward. And I hope that, like I said, that we can educate families and patients and women, when we're talking about women, about ways to navigate through their own life, to mitigate risk uh, for health issues, but also to just move forward with a more balanced life. And that it's okay to do that and that it's actually part of a health plan to do that. And my hope is that we can shift from the medicalization of everything to a more balanced approach. That's what I hope. And I, and I strongly believe in Western medicine. I strongly believe in science, but I also believe there are many things that we don't value as much as perhaps we should like lifestyle medicine and mind-body practices. So that's really going to be the focus of the remainder of my career is trying to get people to listen to that part. <laughs> Dr. Hayden, thank you so much for spending your time with us today. And we are absolutely listening and we thank you for all of the work that you do. Thank you. Take care and everybody stay well. got a few new synapses firing for you be sure to subscribe on whichever platform you get your podcasts to hear our episodes when they drop every second wednesday each month get in touch with us we welcome any questions and constructive feedback you can email us at womenshealth.interrupted at ubc.ca or find us on twitter at research on wh or on instagram at whr cluster to learn more about this topic, check out our show notes at womenshealthresearch.ubc.ca. We would like to thank the Michael Smith Foundation, BioTalent Canada, Patreon, and the UBC Global Lounge for their generous support of this project. We would also like to thank the UBC Medicine Learning Network and its wonderful staff for hosting our podcast. And a special thank you to Catherine Moore, who manages the Women's Health Research Cluster for all of her work in the development of this initiative. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a wonderful day or evening wherever you are, and please take care of yourselves. Wishing you good health. This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network. 